Oh, so last episode, in the before times, we, and by we I mean me, but you're also a part of this, we looked at the more painful sides to playing records and the scourge that is inner groove distortion. That was one of the most technical episodes of Key Change that I've done, and I'm quietly proud of it. It's not exactly essential background listening for this episode, but it might help with some context. Plus, I like knowing that people are listening. So in that episode, I was talking about the technical limits of mastering records, and I made an offhand comment about how those sort of rules carried over to CDs, even though the technical requirements weren't there anymore. Sharpie listener and Patreon backer, William, hit me up on Twitter to kindly ask that I explain what I meant. And I'd like to apologise. I do forget that some other, more normal people haven't spent as much time around CDs as I have. In all seriousness, two of my favourite books are Perfecting Sound Forever and Appetite for Self-Destruction, both of which are obsessed with music technology. Appetite for Self-Destruction is about the way that CDs were used to replace vinyl in the music industry, which is a very interesting thing. And Perfecting Sound Forever is about the evolution of music recording technology from the early 1900s. Fascinating stuff, but I've spent too much time reading that. I probably should remember that not everyone else has done that. As for what that has to do with loudness wars, well... You'll just have to bear with me a few minutes. We'll get there in a sec. I'm Ginger Valentine, and this is Key Change. Music. Dance music. Key Change. Don't modulate the key, then not debate with me. With Ginger Valentine. So if you haven't listened back to that last episode, I was talking about record structures and how some artists will still lay out their albums based on the physical limitations of vinyl, even though they're digital releases. To give that proper context, let's talk about what mastering really means. It's usually done by a specialist mastering engineer, and it's one of the final steps in making an album where the tracks come together to form a cohesive whole. A side note, mastering will also happen at a track-by-track level, but I'm mostly interested in the album-making process here. It is an extremely technical process, and way, way beyond my full understanding. So apologies to any technically savvy people. If I get it wrong, please do let me know. There is always that possibility. But one of the key aspects of mastering is polishing the songs to make sure that they fit together and sound like they're connected to each other. Given that most songs are recorded out of sequence, part by part, maybe even across multiple studios, mastering is a hugely undervalued step in making an album that brings the whole thing together. And all this happens well after the songs have been recorded, usually. So it's the mastering engineer's job to turn a bunch of songs into a record. They'll do that by adjusting the EQ to make the album sound more consistent, but that job also involves making it sound the best that it can. In the vinyl era, the pros knew how to tweak the limits of the format, but there were some hard rules you had to abide by. For what we're talking about, we're going to focus on two of those immovable limits, frequency and dynamic range. Now, these are technical things, and I apologize, but I'm not going to get lost in numbers here. We spent a bit of time on frequency last episode, but the short version is that the human ear can hear a range of frequencies from a low of roughly 20 hertz right up to around 20,000 hertz at the high end, give or take. Vinyl can theoretically render that full range of sound, but once you get down to the very low frequencies, you can get some rumble creeping in that adds an ugly noise to the quiet parts. More concerning is the way that a low frequency track can make the stylus wobble wildly in the groove, so much so that it might jump clean out. That's not exactly a good record experience, and it can wreck your precious hi-fi gear, so mastering engineers tended to pull back on the bass for a vinyl master. 
Actually, there are a bunch of things that can make a needle jump out of a record groove. It's an incredibly delicate process, converting those waves in the groove into sound, and it doesn't take much to disrupt it. And that leads us to our second limit for vinyl, dynamic range, and its close cousin, intensity. Actually, all these three things are intertwined with each other. Frequency range is the potential sounds a format can cover. Dynamic range is how quickly it can switch between those sounds. And intensity is more or less how loud a sound appears to be. We'll talk more about how loudness works in a minute. The delicate physical design of vinyl playback means you've got to be very careful when you're mastering. All it takes is a too sharp drum hit against a quiet background, or a record that's mastered too hot, aka too loud, and the needle can jump out of the groove, which tends to ruin the album. Remember I talked about when the levy breaks last episode, and how it was produced to take the edge off in a groove distortion. Well, it's also a great example of how far a record can be pushed, and what's non-negotiable. Those big bottom drums sound so monolithic, partly because of how soft everything else is on the track. The guitars and the vocals are creating the sense that the song is only so big that it carries this much sonic information and fills up this much space. And it's all quite level and even throughout. So when you get this sudden sharp spike of a drum hit, it sounds, by contrast, like a gunshot. It's far more powerful because you've been trained to think that the song can only go up to six and it's just revealed that it can go all the way up to 11. Now, it might be even more impactful if the guitars and vocals were softer, but one of those big cymbal crashes could bump that needle right out of the groove if the dynamic range between softest and loudest switches too quickly. So the balance there is carefully judged. Like we discussed way, way back in November 2018, artists like Mitski and the Pixies use those same massive dynamic shifts to really floor you when the change happens. But that contrast between soft and loud, gentle and hard, slow and fast, is one of the essential parts of just about every genre. Even drone metal musicians like Boris play off that, albeit on a far longer timescale. Things are a bit different when you get to CDs. Because digital music sources like CDs don't have a needle to pump out of the groove, they're much better at handling those stark dynamics without making the record As far as the CD was concerned, it's all just ones and zeros, whatever it sounded like to your ears. CDs could also handle greater intensity than a record. Yet another way you could kick the needle out of the groove if you weren't careful. Intensity, for our purposes, is essentially volume. We perceive higher intensity as louder, even though, objectively speaking, there's no way to measure volume outside of your ear. Intensity is about as close as we get to volume in mastering terms. But at first, CDs didn't really test the limits of what they could do. For the first decade or two, they just sounded like vinyl, albeit without the surface noise hissing and crackling under everything. I noticed this back when I worked in music retail, where we'd put on CDs to provide the store soundtrack. If you put on, say, one of the original CD transfers of the Beatles records before the remasters came out in 2009, you'd then have to race back in and slam down the volume dial when the next, more modern album came on, or the customers would wince in pain. Those original masters were so soft, you'd have to crank the volume to even hear them clearly, and even so, they sounded pretty weak compared to the new releases, or an equally old album that had gotten a digital remaster. Now, broadly speaking, most digital remasters just pump up the bass and push the intensity up into the red, making it sound a little bit more consistent with what we've come to expect. Since I already brought up the Beatles, those remasters got a little bit more loving attention than most digital remasters might do. But you can hear in there how much punchier it sounds, how much more full and weighty it is. The remastered version is taking much better advantage of the possibilities of what a CD can handle. 
but there's a monkey's paw kind of quality to this louder, more impactful approach to mastering. One that makes the music more attention-grabbing at the cost of what some might call its spirit. See, to make it louder, we introduce one of modern audio's most common double-edged swords, compression. Now, before we go too far, let's clarify what we're talking about here, because compression has a lot of meanings, even just in music terms. What we're not talking about is file type compression. File type compression is the way that digital music is stored in smaller files that take up less space so that they're easier to store and easy to stream. That can certainly affect the sound of your music, but we'll leave that for later. Maybe if you're keen, we could do a three-part series on why every format sounds bad. The compression we're talking about here is a way of squashing the song down so everything can get pushed louder and louder. I should note from the beginning, compression isn't inherently bad. It's in every bit of audio you'll hear, and it exists as a pre-digital function as well. I'm running a compression algorithm or two on this very podcast, on my voice. But like anything else, you can have too much of a good thing, and did we go hard on a good thing for a while there? When you're talking about it in the mastering phase, compression is a way of sacrificing that dynamic range to get more intensity. That trade-off means that a track like When the Levee Breaks can go louder overall at the cost of that striking drum crack. Balancing those more natural dynamics with modern audio expectations was a huge challenge for the engineers who did the Beatles remaster, even though mastering engineer Steve Rook had to all but hold his nose while applying that 21st century kind of compression. Rook and the other engineers did a terrific job of reinvigorating the Beatles for a modern audience, but a lot of releases around that same time were pushing harder and harder on the compression in an escalating competition to stand out on the radio. This race to the bottom came to be known as the Loudness War, and before it was over, some of the world's biggest artists would be counted among the casualties. It started, as a lot of things do, with Iggy Pop. A 1997 remaster of the Stooges' 1973 album Raw Power, helmed by Iggy himself, was one of the earliest releases to test the limits of the CD's capacity for loudness, adding an extra layer of brute force to an already intense record. The Iggy of 1997 wielded the compression like a blunt instrument, which is why Search and Destroy sounds weirdly fizzy. But that digital noise kind of works with the overdriven analogue fuzz of the original in a way that actually improves it. I wish that I could say the same for the Red Hot Chili Peppers album of 1999, Californication. Honestly, full disclosure, Red Hot Chili Peppers are one of the rare bands that I struggle to listen to anymore, but in this case, it's not just because Anthony Kiedis's Anglo-reggae rap rock word salad drives me up the wall. Right from the start, album opener Around the World is an exhausting, noisy, and character-free song. You hear that same fizzy layer all over it, and everything feels like it's shouting at you, from John Frusciante's needling guitar to the weird, funky drum machine in the chorus. Every instrument and Kiedis' voice, they're all cranked to 11 without the slightest moment of softness or quiet. It's crowded and abrasive, and for a quote-unquote real band, every instrument sounds synthetic and dull. I'm not saying this to be mean, like if you like this album, if you like Red Hot Chili Peppers, that's fine. I'm not really interested in judging them as musicians. This is a purely sonic thing, and I think the album could be better without all this. Because for me right now, it's 
unpleasant to listen to. And, unfortunately or otherwise, it's also one of their biggest hits to date. Californication sold more than 15 million copies. I know, I owned one, and I remember it being a phenomenon. My feelings toward the music have changed, obviously, but I can't quite separate myself from it. There are good reasons for Californication's success, not least the return of John Frusciante and a post-rehabbed Anthony Kiedis, but the hyper-loud production made songs like Scar Tissue punch through the speakers to dominate on the radio. Remember when Radio Play made a hit? Maybe I'm showing my age. But that sacrifice of musical detail and humanity in favour of loudness and impact was perfect for car speakers, cheap stereos, tinny earbuds, all that sort of stuff, and started a trend that's still going on today. Scar Tissue spent 16 weeks on top of Billboard's rock chart. That success spawned a legion of imitators struggling to make their music sound the loudest in the beginning years of the decline. Now, when I say the music sounds louder, that's on purpose. On the best available objective measures, Californication is as loud as any other album. Compression is a trick played on our ears that we perceive as loudness. What it actually does is squish, or compress, the distance between the loudest and softest sounds so that our ears lose that perspective. Suddenly, everything is loud. So if you did that to something like when the levee breaks in the example I gave before, the drums are as loud as the guitars, as loud as the vocals, so that cut through just doesn't exist. You know, have that stark moment. There's still a little bit of like timbre from the drums, but it's not the same. If you've ever been watching a YouTube video or something and jumped at an ad that's much louder than everything around it, or winced when a pre-recorded announcement on a train or a tram hurt your ears, you have been a victim of extreme compression, and you might be entitled to compensation. Push too far, compressed sound is effective, but it's also abrasive, and it wears you out. Metallica fans found that out the hard way back in 2008 on the much-anticipated release of their album Death Magnetic. Not unlike Californication, Death Magnetic had a lot going for it, musically speaking, even if it's been a while since Metallica did anything for me personally. But on the day it came out, I put it on in store, and before the album could finish, even the biggest metalheads at work found it hard to endure. It was only about 10 minutes longer than Metallica's iconic Black album. But Death Magnetic felt like an impossible slog. And the hyper-compressed production is the prime culprit. In a way, it almost works as a stylistic choice like it did on Raw Power, but Metallica don't have that same sort of sloppy charisma that the Stooges had to get them by, so that overcrowded one-dimensional sound gets grating really quickly. And truthfully, Metallica weren't the worst or even close to the most obnoxious in the loudness war. I'd argue that the Flaming Lips or even the Arctic Monkeys were worse affected by the wave of compression, but metal as a genre tends to play into the sounds and timbres that sound the worst with that hyper-compression that really draw your attention to it. More notable about Death Magnetic, though, and just obscenely 2008, is the fact that fans found a more natural, better balanced version of the album on Guitar Hero. The entirety of Death Magnetic was released as DLC for Guitar Hero 3, Legends of Rock, and it sounded noticeably better than the album version. I'll include a picture of the waveform diagram that compares the album version to the Guitar Hero release, since it spells out the state of the music really clearly. You don't need to be an audio engineer to see that the CD version looked crowded and messy, 
like a nightclub that doesn't check IDs. On the rectangular form of a waveform diagram, it's a solid line just about. The DLC version has those peaks and troughs that feel more like real sound, with room to make those sharp drum hits really kick through. Those create what we call transients, almost straight up and down lines that test the limit of dynamic range, and which are some of the first things that get chopped off with hypercompression. So in this version, in the DLC version, you can almost see how much more natural they sound, like an actual physical drum shot instead of a really flat, uniform toy kit. Fans used that DLC version to demand a remaster, but it wasn't until 2015 that the mastered for iTunes version of Death Magnetic came along to right some of the original's wrongs. By that point, the loudness war had peaked, and measures in the US and the EU established clearer guidelines designed to limit the abuse of that hypercompression. As we kick off the third decade of the millennium, things are a little bit less loud than they were at the tail end of the late aughts, but compression is still very liberally applied. Maybe it's because we're used to it, or maybe because we need more punch in our AirPods to hear the music without really feeling the loss of those dynamics. I have a feeling that's why we like vinyl so much, or at least that's one factor in why it sounds more appealing. There's no getting away from compression. It's everywhere, even on some record masters. The genie's out of the bottle, But if we're lucky, we'll learn how to use it a little bit more carefully so that we can hear our music just that little bit better. Good lord, folks, it has been a time since we last spoke. How are you doing? How are you holding up? I I know the answer to that is difficult. Uh, and probably not entirely good, but I hope that you're all holding together as best you can under the circumstances. Because as I speak to you right now, uh, recording in Melbourne's inner north, under lockdown conditions, things are weird. But I'm glad to be back with you for a little bit. I'm very lucky that I've had time to work on this and come back to you and maybe make a little bit of a connection when I'm getting a little bit lonely in the house by myself. Hopefully while I've got this time, I'm going to make a couple more episodes of Key Change and a couple more episodes of my previous podcast of this, Common Sense with Bert Franklap. So I hope you're excited to hear it. Maybe a little bit of a different voice in your ears might help the pandemic life to feel like it's going a little bit more quickly or just change stuff up a little bit or make you feel less alone when you're staying home and staying safe. And I hope you are all staying safe. Wear your masks. Don't go outside of your house if you don't have to. Physical distancing, people. It's tough. But one of the... Maybe upsides to this is a stretch of a silver lining, but it's a great time to listen to a lot of music. And there's a lot of great music going on. This is an incredibly fertile period for new music, not least of which is the brand new Taylor Swift album that dropped uh, about six hours before I'm recording this. 2020 is already full of amazing records. Orville Peck's got a new EP coming out next month. I've heard great things about Gordy's new album. Can you check that out? Hayley Witters is a country artist. Very much in the same vein as Casey Musgraves, if you're keen. Uh, her album, The Dream, is really gorgeous. The Chicks, Gaslighter is an absolute banger. The title track is a killer, and the rest of the album is very strong. Maybe the best breakup album since Fleetwood Max Rumors. Who can say? Oh, and how can I forget the Beths? Oh my god, I'm so obsessed with the Beths new album. I'm, I'm late to that train, but Jump Rope Gazers is the one that I've just been playing nonstop since it came out the other week. I, I could rattle off more. Jesse Ware, Gillian Welch and David Rawlings, Karangbin, there's a new Sufjan Stevens coming. Like It's an amazing time for really interesting and diverse music. And I hope that you are taking this opportunity to take care of yourselves and 
maybe escape from the world around you a little bit with some music, feel something different, imagine yourself somewhere else uh, and pop on a record or pop on a podcast and hang out with me. In my original notes for this, because I wrote this episode before the pandemic hit, so I, uh, it was a bit weird revisiting this episode script, I had intended to thank my Patreon supporters for supporting me for being such lovely people. And I will, and I do. Uh, I put this show on hiatus for a, a couple of months. Well, at that point, it was indefinite, and it might go back to hiatus. I don't know what the future holds. At this point, I'm sure we're all a little bit loath to try and predict the future very far. But like, I appreciate everyone who supports me in any meaningful way whatsoever, whether that's just telling me that you like the thing that I make, financial support is great, telling someone else that it's good. All those things are great and wonderful. But I think there's something that I particularly appreciate about the people who, when I put the show on hiatus for a little bit, feel free to suspend your support. Just about everyone stuck around. And if you didn't stick around, that's totally fine. That was why I wanted to give you the option. But it was really heartening to see that. So I appreciate it and I appreciate you all. So a particular message of love and appreciation and thanks to Sally William, whom I mentioned at the top of this episode, who this episode wouldn't exist without William. So thank you. Andy, Sam, Maeve, Susie, Joss, Jessica, Eloise and Tom. I appreciate every single one of you. And I appreciate every single one of you listening. It's been really good to get back into this. I missed it. And I missed this creative outlet. And I missed talking to you so i hope you enjoyed this episode hit me up on twitter at gingerbfg if you've got any questions or there's the key change twitter key change cast or one word and maybe if i'm lucky you'll stick around for the next episode which i will have ready for you very soon it's an episode all about phoebe bridges and how much i love her so come back in about a month i love you i support your dreams and some motherfuckers think they're born to dance some motherfuckers think they're born to dance (laughs) 